Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road, at Chapter 4 of Mr. Standfast by John Buchan. And now, our story. Chapter 4, Andrew Amos. I took the train three days later from King's Cross to Edinburgh. I went to the Pentland Hotel in Prince's Street and left there a suitcase containing some clean linen and a change of clothes. I had been thinking the thing out and had come to the conclusion that I must have a base somewhere and a fresh outfit. Then in well-worn tweeds and with no more luggage than a small trench kit bag, I descended upon that city of Glasgow. I walked from the station to the address which Blankiron had given me. It was a hot summer evening, and the streets were filled with bareheaded women and weary-looking artisans. As I made my way down the Dumbarton Road, I was amazed at the number of able-bodied fellows about, "'considering that you couldn't stir a mile on any British front "'without bumping up against a Glasgow battalion. "'Then I realized that there were such things as munitions and ships, "'and I wondered no more. "'A stout and disheveled lady at a closed mouth "'directed me to Mr. Amos's dwelling. Two stairs up. Odra will be in having his tea. "'He's no yin for overtime. "'He's generally home on the Chapa Six. "'I ascended the stairs with a sinking heart, "'for like all South Africans I have a horror of dirt.' The place was pretty filthy, but at each landing there were two doors with well-polished handles and brass plates. On one I read the name of Andrew Amos. A man in his shirt sleeves opened to me. A little man, without a collar, and with an unbuttoned waistcoat. That was all I saw of him in the dim light, but he held out a paw like a gorilla's and drew me in. The sitting-room, which looked over many chimneys to a pale yellow sky, against which two factory stalks stood out sharply. "'gave me light enough to observe him fully. "'He was about five feet four, broad-shouldered, "'and with a great towsy head of grizzled hair. "'He wore spectacles, and his face was like some old-fashioned Scots minister's, "'for he had heavy eyebrows and whiskers which joined each other under his jaw, "'while his chin and enormous upper lip were clean-shaven. "'His eyes were steely gray and very solemn, but full of smoldering energy.' His voice was enormous and would have shaken the walls if he had not had the habit of speaking with half-closed lips. He had not a sound tooth in his head. A saucer full of tea and a plate which had once contained ham and eggs were on the table. He nodded towards them and asked me if I had eaten. "'You'll know eat anything? Some would offer you a dram, but this house is a staunch teetotal. I door you'll have to try the nearest public if you're thirsty. So, Mr. Brand's your name?' he asked in his gusty voice. I was expecting you. But, Dodd, man, you're late. He extricated from his trousers pocket an ancient silver watch and regarded it with disfavor. The dashed thing is stop it. What do you make of the time, Mr. Brand? He proceeded to pry open the lid of his watch with the knife he had used to cut his tobacco, and, as he examined the works, he turned the back of the case towards me. On the inside I saw pasted Mary Lamington's purple and white wafer. I held my watch up so that he could see the same token. His keen eyes, raised for a second, noted it, and he shut his own with a snap and returned it to his pocket. His manner lost its wariness and became almost genial. "'You've come up to see Glasgow, Mr. Brand. Well, it's a steerin' bit, and there's honest folk bides in it, and some not so honest. They tell me you're from South Africa. That's a long gate away. But I ken something about South Africa.' "'for I had a cousin's son out there for his lungs. "'He was in a shop in Main Street, Bloomfountain. "'They called him Peter Dobson. "'You had maybe mind of him.' "'Then he discoursed of the Clyde. "'He was an incomer, he told me, from the borders, 
his native place being the town of Galatios, or as he called it, Gauley. I began as a power-loom tuner in Stafford's mill. Then my father died, and I took up his trade of joiner. But it's no world nowadays for the small independent business, so I came to the Clyde and learned a shipwright's job. I may say I've become a leader in the trade, for though I'm no an official of the Union, and not likely to be, there's no man's word carries more weight than mine, and the government kens that, for they've sent me on commissions up and down the land to look at woods and report on the nature of the timber. Bribery, they think it is. But Andrew Amos is not to be bribed. He'll have his way about any government on earth and tell them to their face what he thinks of them. Aye, and he'll fight the case for the working man against his oppressor, should it be the government or the fatted calves at the labor union. You'll have heard tell of the shop stewards, Mr. Brand? I admitted I had, for I had been well coached by Blankiron in the current history of industrial disputes. Well, I'm a shop steward. We represent the rank and file against the office bearers that have lost the confidence of the working man. But I'm no socialist, and I would have you keep mind of that. I'm yin of the old border radicals, and I'm not like to change. I'm for individual liberty and equal rights and chances for all men. I'll no more bow down before a dagon of the government official than before the bale of a feckless tweed-side laird. I've to keep my views to myself, for these young lads are all drunk and daft with their wee books about capital and collectivism, and long senseless words I would not try my tongue with. Them and their socialism. There's more gumption in a page of John Stuart Mill than in all that foreign trash. But as I say, I've got to keep a quiet sow, for the world is getting socialism now like the measles. It all comes of a defective education. And what does a border radical say about the war? I asked. He took off his spectacles and cocked his shaggy brows at me. I tell you, Mr. Brand, all that was bad and all that I've ever wrestled with since I came to years of discretion. Tories and lairds and manufacturers and publicans and the old Kirk. All that was bad, I say, for there was our bits of decency. You'll find in the Germans full measure pressed down and running over. When the war started, I considered the subject calmly for three days, and then I said, Andraimus, you found the enemy at last. The ones you fought before were, in a manner of speaking, just misguided friends. It's either you or the Kaiser this time, my man. His eyes had lost their gravity and had taken on a somber ferocity. Aye, and I've not wavered. I got a word early in the business as to the way I could serve my country best. It's not been an easy job, and there's plenty of honest folk that they will give me a bad name. They think I'm stirring up the men at home and deserting the cause of the lads at the front, man. I'm keeping them straight. If I didn't fight their battles on a sound economic issue, they would take the dorts and be at the mercy of the first blaggard that preached revolution. Me and my like are safety valves, if you follow me. And didn't you make any mistake, Mr. Brand? The man they're agitating for a rise in wages are not for peace. They're fighting for the lads overseas as much as for themselves. There's not yin in a thousand that wouldn't sweat himself blind to beat the Germans. The government's made mistakes, and mud be made to pay for them. If it were not so, the men would feel like a moose in a trap, for they would have no way to make their grievance felt. What for should the big man double his profits, and the small man be ill-set to get his ham and egg on Sabbath morning? That's the meaning of labor unrest, as they call it, and it's a good thing, says I, for if labor did not get its leg over the traces now and then, the spank of the land would be dead in it, and Handenberg could squeeze it like a rotten apple. I asked if he spoke for the bulk of the men. For ninety percent on only ballot. 
I don't say that there's not plenty of riffraff, the pint and a dram gentry and the soft heads that are eye-reading bits of newspapers and muddling their wits with foreign wigmaleries, but the average man on the Clyde, like the average man in other places, hates just three things, and that's Germans, the profiteers as they call them, and the Irish. But he hates the Germans first. The Irish? I exclaimed in astonishment. Aye, the Irish, cried the last of the old border radicals. Glasgow's stinking nowadays with two things, money and Irish. I mind the day when I followed Mr. Gladstone's home rule policy and used to threep about the noble, generous, warm-hearted sister nation held in a foreign bondage. My God! I'm not speaking about Ulster, which is a dour, ill-natured den, but our own folk all the same. But the men that will not do a hand's turn to help the war and take the chance of our necessities to set up a bobby rebellion are hateful to God and man. We treated them like pet lambs, and that's the thanks we get. They're coming over here in thousands to take the jobs of lads that are doing their duty. I was speaking last week to a widow woman that keeps a wee dairy down the Dilmarnock Road. She has two sons, and both in the army, one in the Cameronians and one a prisoner Germany. She was telling me that she could not keep going any more, lacking the help of the boys, but she'd worked her fingers to the bone. Surely it's a cruel job, Mr. Amos, she says, that the government should take both my laddies, and maybe I'll never see them again, and let the Irish gang free, and take the bread from our mouth. At the gasworks across the road they took on a hundred Irish last week, and every yin of them as young and well set up as you could ask to see. And my wee Davy, him that's in Germany, had I a weak chest, and Jimmy was troubled with a bowel complaint. That's surely no justice. He broke off and lit a match by drawing it across the seat of his trousers. It's time I got the gas lighted. There's some men coming in here at half ten. As the gas squealed and flickered in the lighting, he sketched for me the coming guest. There's McNabb and Niven, two of my colleagues, and there's Gilkison of the boiler fitters, and a lad Wilkie. He's got consumption, and writes wee bits in the papers. And there's a queer chap of the name of Toombs. They tell me he comes from Cambridge, and he's a kind of professor there. Anyways, more stuff with havers than an egg with meat. He told me he was here to get at the heart of the working man, and I said to him that he would have to look a bit farther than the sleeve of the working man's jacket. There's no muckle in his head, poor soul. Then there'll be Tam Norrie, him that edits our weekly paper, Justice for All. Tam's a humorist and great on Robert Burns, but he has now the balance of a dwine and teetotum. You'll understand, Mr. Brand, but I keep my mouth shut in such company, and don't express my own views more than is absolutely necessary. I criticize Wiles, and that gives me the name of Winston Common Sense. But I never let my tongue wag. The feck of the lads come in the night are not the real working man. They're just a froth on the pot. But it's the froth that will be useful to you. Remember, they've heard tell ye already, and ye've some sort of reputation to keep up. Will Mr. Abel Gresson be here? I asked. No, he said. Not yet. Him and me haven't yet got to the point of paying visits. "'but the men that come will be Gresson's friends, "'and they'll speak of you to him. "'It's the best kind of introduction you can seek.' "'The knocker sounded, "'and Mr. Amos hastened to admit the first comers. "'These were McNabb and Wilkie, "'the one a decent middle-aged man "'with a fresh-washed face and a celluloid collar, "'the other a round-shouldered youth "'with lank hair and the large eyes and luminous skin "'which are the marks of Plithesis. 
"'This is Mr. Brand, boys, from South Africa,' was Amos's presentation. Presently came Niven, a bearded giant, and Mr. Norrie, the editor, a fat, dirty fellow smoking a rank cigar. Gilkison of the boiler fitters, when he arrived, proved to be a pleasant young man in spectacles who spoke with an educated voice and clearly belonged to a slightly different social scale. Last came Toombs, the Cambridge professor, a lean youth with a sour mouth and eyes that reminded me of Launcelot Wake. "'Ye'll no be a magnet, Mr. Brand, though ye come from South Africa,' said Mr. Norrie, with a real guffaw. "'No, not me. I'm a working engineer,' I said. "'My father was from Scotland, and this is my first visit to my native country, as my friend Mr. Amos was telling you.' The consumptive looked at me suspiciously. "'We've got two, three of the comrades here that the capitalist government expelled from the Transvaal. If you're our way of thinking, you'll maybe know them.' I said I'd be overjoyed to meet them, but that at the time of the outraging question I'd been working on a mine a thousand miles further north. Then ensued an hour of extraordinary talk. Toombs in his sing-song Mamby-Pamby University voice was concerned to get information. He asked endless questions, chiefly of Gilkison, who was the only one who really understood his language. I thought I'd never seen anyone quite so fluent and so futile, and yet there was a kind of feeble violence in him like a demented sheep. He was engaged in venting some private academic spite against society, and I thought that in a revolution he would be the class of lad I would personally conduct to the nearest lamppost. And all the while Amos and McNabb and Nivens carried on their own conversation about the affairs of their society, wholly impervious to the tornado raging around them. It was Mr. Norrie, the editor, who brought me into the discussion. "'Our South African friend is very blate,' he said in his boisterous way. "'Andra?' If this place of yours wasn't so damn teetotal and we had a drama piece, we might get his tongue loosened. I want to hear what he's got to say about the war. You told me this morning he was sound in the faith. Oh, I said no such thing, said Mr. Amos. As you can tell, Tam Nori, I don't judge soundness on the matter as you judge it. I'm for the war myself, subject to certain conditions I've often stated. I know nothing of Mr. Brand's opinions, except that he's a good Democrat, which is more than I can say of some of your friends. Here to Andra, laughed Mr. Norrie. He's thinking the inspector in the socialist state would be a war kind of aristocrat than the Duke of Buchlick. Well, maybe there's something in that, but about the war he's wrong. You know my views, boys. This war was made by the capitalists, and it's been fought by the workers, and it's the workers that'll have the ending of it. The day is coming very near. There are those who want to spit it out till labor is that weak it can be put in the change for the rest of time. That's the maneuver we're out to prevent. We've got to beat the Germans, but it's the workers that has the right to judge when the enemy's beaten, and not the capitalist. What do you say, Mr. Brand? Mr. Norrie had obviously pinned his colors to the fence, but he gave me the chance I've been looking for. I let them have my views with a vengeance, and these views were that for the sake of democracy the war must be ended. I flatter myself I put my case well. "'where I'd got up every rotten argument "'and I borrowed largely from Launcelot Wake's armory, "'but I didn't put it too well, "'for I had a very exact notion of the impression I wanted to produce. "'I must seem to be honest and in earnest, "'just a bit of the fanatic, "'but principally a hard-headed businessman "'who knew when the time had come to make a deal. "'Toombs kept interrupting me with imbecile questions, "'and I had to sit on him. "'At the end Mr. Norrie hammered with his pipe on the table. "'That'll sort you, Andra. "'You're entertaining an angel unawares.' "'What do you say to that, my man?' Mr. Amos shook his head. "'I'll no deny there's something in it, "'but I'm not convinced that the Germans have got enough of a whipping. 
McNabb agreed with him. The others were with me. Norrie was forgetting me to write an article for his paper, and the consumptive wanted me to address a meeting. Will you say that again? Will you say that tomorrow, down at our hall in Numulus Street? We've got a lodge meeting of the IWB, and I'll make them put you in the program. He kept his luminous eyes like a sick dog's fixed on me, and I saw that I had made one ally. I told him that I had come to Glasgow to learn and not to teach, but I would miss no chance to testify to my faith. "'Now, boys, I'm for my bed,' said Amos, shaking the dottle from his pipe. "'Mr. Toombs, I'll conduct ye the morn over the brigand works, but I've had enough clavers for one evening. I'm a man that wants his eight hours sleep.' The old fellow saw them to the door and came back to me with a ghost of a grin in his face. "'A queer crowd, Mr. Brand. McNabb didn't like what you said.' "'He had a laddie killed in Gallipoli, "'and he's no looking for peace this side of the grave. "'He's my best friend in Glasgow. "'He's an elder in the Gaelic Kirk and the Calcadans, "'and I'm what you call a free thinker. "'But we're wonderful agreed on the fundamentals. "'You spoke your bit very well, I must admit. "'Gresson will hear tell of you as a promising recruit.' "'It's a rotten job,' I said. "'Aye, it's a rotten job. "'I often feel like vomiting over it myself, "'but it's not for us to complain.' "'A word in your ear, Mr. Brand. "'Could you not look a bit more sheepish? "'You stare folks straight in the eye, "'like a Highland Sergeant Major up at Merry Hill Barracks.' "'And he winked slowly and grotesquely with his left eye. "'He marched to a cupboard and produced a black bottle and a glass. "'I'm blue ribbon myself, "'but you'll be the better of something to take the taste out of your mouth. "'There's luck Katrine water at the pipe there. "'As I was saying, there's not much ill in that lot. "'Tombs is a black offense.' "'but a dominee's a dominee all the world over. "'They may crack about their industrial workers "'and brow things they're going to do, "'but there's a wholesome dampness about the tinder on Clydeside. "'They should try Ireland.' "'Supposing,' I said, "'there was a really clever man who wanted to help the enemy. "'You think he could do little good "'by stirring up trouble in the shops here?' "'I'm positive. "'And if he were a shrewd fellow, "'he'd soon tumble to that?' "'Aye.' "'Then if he still stayed on here, he would be after bigger game. "'Something really dangerous and damnable.' "'Amos drew down his brows and looked me in the face. "'I see what you're getting at me, boy. "'That would be my conclusion. "'I came to it a week since about the man you'll maybe meet the morn's night.' "'Then from below the bed he pulled a box from which he drew a handsome flute. "'You'll forgive me, Mr. Brand, but I like a tune before I go to my bed. "'McNabb says his prayers, and I have a tune on the flute.' "'and the principle's just about the same. "'So that singular evening closed with music, "'very sweet and true renderings of old border melodies "'like My Peggy is a Young Thing "'and When the Kai Come Home. "'I fell asleep with the vision of Amos, "'his face all puckered up in the mouth "'and a wandering sentiment in his eye, "'recapturing in his dingy world "'the emotions of a boy. "'We'll return to our story "'right after this sponsor message.' The widow woman from next door, who acted as housekeeper, cook, and general factotum to the establishment, brought me shaving water next morning, but I had to go without a bath. When I entered the kitchen I found no one there, but while I consumed the inevitable ham and egg, Amos arrived back for breakfast. He brought with him the morning's paper. "'The Herald says there's been a big battle at Espers,' he announced. I tore open the sheet and read of the great attack of 31st July, which was spoiled by the weather. "'My God!' I cried. They've got the St. Julian and that dirty Fresenberg Ridge and Hooge and Sanctuary Wood. I knew every inch of that damn place. 
"'Mr. Brand?' said a warning voice. "'That'll never do. "'If our friends last night heard you talk like that, "'you might as well take the train back to London. "'They're speaking about you in the yards this morning. "'You'll get a good turnout at your meeting tonight, "'but they're saying that the police will interfere. "'That might not be a bad thing, "'but I trust you to show discretion, "'for you'll not be Mucklesworth of use to anybody "'if they jile you in Duke Street. "'I hear Gresson will be there "'with a fraternal message from his lunatics in America.' "'I've arranged that you go down to Tam Norrie this afternoon "'and give him hand with his bit paper. "'Tam will tell you the whole clash of the West Country, "'and I look to ye to keep him off the drink. "'He's I arguing that writing and drinking "'gang together and quoting Robert Burns, "'but the creature has a wife and five bairns dependent on him. "'I spent a fantastic day. "'For two hours I sat in Norrie's dirty den "'while he smoked and orated, and when he remembered his business, took down in shorthand my impressions of the labor situation in South Africa for his rag. They were fine, breezy impressions based on the most wholehearted ignorance, and if they ever reached the Rand, I wonder what my friends there made of Cornelius Brand, their author. I stood him dinner at an indifferent eating house in a street off the Broomielaw, and thereafter had a drink with him in a public house, and was introduced to some of his less reputable friends. About tea time I went back to Amos's lodgings and spent an hour or so writing a long letter to Mr. Ivory. I described to him everybody I had met. I gave highly colored views of the explosive material on the Clyde, and I deplored the lack of clear-headedness in the progressive forces. I drew an elaborate picture of Amos and deduced from it that the radicals were like to be a bar to true progress. They have switched their old militancy, I wrote, onto another track, for with them it is a matter of conscience to be always militant. I finished up with some very crude remarks on economics called from the table talk of the egregious tombs. It was the kind of letter which I hoped would establish my character in his mind as an industrious innocent. Seven o'clock found me in Newmilne Street, where I was seized upon by Wilkie. He had put on a clean collar for the occasion and had partially washed his thin face. The poor fellow had a cough that shook him like the walls of a powerhouse when the dynamos are going. He was very apologetic about Amos. "'Andrew belongs to the past world,' he said. "'He has a big reputation in his society, and he's a fine fighter. But he has no kind of vision, if you understand me. He's an old Gladstonian, and that's done and damned in Scotland. He's not a modern, Mr. Brand, like you and me. But tonight you'll meet one or two chaps that'll be worth your while to know.' You'll maybe not go quite as far as them, but you're on the same road. I'm hoping for the day when we'll have our councils of workmen and soldiers like the Russians all over the land, and dictate our terms to the parasites in Parliament. They tell me, too, the boys in the trenches are coming round to our side. We entered the hall by a back door, and in a little waiting room I was introduced to some of the speakers. They were a scratch lot as seen in that dingy place. The chairman was a shop steward in one of the societies, a fierce little rat of a man, "'who spoke with a cockney accent "'and addressed me as comrade. "'But one of them roused my liveliest interest. "'I heard the name of Gresson, "'and I turned to find a fellow of about thirty-five, "'rather sprucely dressed, "'with a flower in his buttonhole. "'Mr. Brand,' he said, "'in a rich American voice "'which recalled Blankirons. "'Very pleased to meet you, sir. "'We have come from remote parts of the globe "'to be present at this gathering. "'I noticed that he had reddish hair "'and small bright eyes, "'and a nose with a droop like a Polish Jew's. "'As soon as we reached the platform "'I saw that there was going to be trouble. "'The hall was packed to the door, "'and in all the front half "'there was the kind of audience I expected to see, "'working men of the political type "'who before the war would have thronged the party meetings. 
"'but not all the crowd at the back had come to listen. "'Some were scalawags. "'Some looked like better-class clerks out for a spree, "'and there was a fair quantity of khaki. "'There were also one or two gentlemen not strictly sober. "'The chairman began by putting his foot in it. "'He said we were there tonight to protest "'against the continuation of the war "'and to form a branch of the new British Council "'of workmen and soldiers. "'He told them with a fine mixture of metaphors "'that we had got to take the reins into our own hands.' "'for the men who were running the war "'had their own axes to grind "'and were marching to oligarchy "'through the blood of the workers. "'He added that we had no quarrel with Germany "'half as bad as we had with our own capitalists. "'He looked forward to the day "'when British soldiers would leap from their trenches "'and extend a hand of friendship "'to their German comrades. "'No me,' said a solemn voice. "'I'm no seeking a bullet in my worm,' "'at which there was laughter and catcalls. "'Toombs followed and made a worse hash of it. He was determined to speak, as he would have put it, to democracy in its own language. So he said hell several times, loudly but without conviction. Presently he slipped into the manner of the lecturer, and the audience grew restless. I propose to ask myself a question, he began, and from the back of the hall came, And a damn silly answer you'll get. After that, there was no more tombs. I followed tombs, and to my surprise got a fair hearing. I felt as mean as a mangy dog on a cold morning, for I hated to talk rot before soldiers, especially before a couple of Royal Scot Fusiliers, who, for all I knew, might have been in my own brigade. My line was the plain, practical, patriotic man, just come from the colonies, who looked at things with fresh eyes, and called for a new deal. I was very moderate, but to justify my appearance there I had to put in a wild patch or two, and I got these by impassioned attacks on the Ministry of Munitions. I mixed up a little mild phrase of the Germans, whom I said I'd known all over the world for decent fellows. I received little applause, but no marked dissent, and sat down with deep thankfulness. The next speaker put the lid on it. I believe he was a noted agitator, who had already been deported. Towards him there was no lukewarmness, for one half of the audience cheered wildly when he rose, and the other half hissed and groaned. He began with a whirlwind abuse of the idle rich, then of the middle classes, he called them rich man's flunkies, and finally of the government. All that was fairly well received, for it is the fashion of the Briton to run down every government and yet to be very averse to parting from it. Then he started on the soldiers and slanged the officers. Gentry Pops was his name for them, and the generals, whom he accused of idleness, of cowardice, and of habitual intoxication. He told us that our own kith and kin were sacrificed at every battle by leaders who had not the guts to share their risks. The Scots Fusiliers looked perturbed, as if they were in doubt of his meaning. Then he put it more plainly. Will any soldier deny that the men are the barrage to keep the officers' skins whole? That's a bloody lie, said one of the Fusilier jocks. The man took no notice of the interruption, being carried away by the torrent of his own rhetoric, but he had not allowed for the persistence of the interrupter. The jock got slowly to his feet and announced that he wanted satisfaction. "'If ye open your dirty gab to blackguard honest men, "'I'll come up on the platform and wring your neck.' "'At that there was a fine old row, "'some crying out order, some fair play, and some applauding. "'A Canadian at the back of the hall started a song, "'and there was an ugly press forward. "'The hall seemed to be moving up from the back, "'and already men were standing in all the passages "'and right to the edge of the platform. "'I did not like the look in the eyes of these newcomers.' and among the crowd I saw several who were obviously plain-clothes policemen. 
The chairman whispered a word to the speaker, who continued when the noise was temporarily died down, and for a little sluiced out pure anarchism. But he got his foot in it again, for he pointed to the Sinn Feiners as examples of manly independence. At that, pandemonium broke loose, and he never had another look in. There were several fights going on in the hall between the public and courageous supporters of the orator. Then Gresson advanced to the edge of the platform, in a vain endeavor to retrieve the day. I must say he did it uncommonly well. He was clearly a practiced speaker, and for a moment his appeal, Now, boys, let's cool down a bit and talk sense, had an effect. But the mischief had been done, and the crowd was surging round the lonely redoubt where we sat. Besides, I could see that for all his clever talk, the meeting did not like the look of him. He was as mild as a turtle dove, but they wouldn't stand for it. A missile hurtled past my nose, and I saw a rotten cabbage envelop the baldish head of the ex-deportee. Someone reached out a long arm and grabbed a chair, and with it took the legs from Gresson. Then the light suddenly went out, and we retreated in good order by the platform door with a yelling crowd at our heels. It was here that the plain-clothes men came in handy. They held the door while the ex-deportee was smuggled out by some side entrance. That class of lad would soon cease to exist but for the protection of the law which he would abolish. The rest of us, having less to fear, were suffered to leak onto Dumoulis Street. I found myself standing next to Gresson and took his arm. There was something hard in his coat pocket. Unfortunately, there was a big lamp at the point where we emerged, and therefore a confusion with the fusilier jocks. Both were strung to the fighting pitch and were determined to have someone's blood. Of me they took no notice, but Gresson had spoken after their ire had been roused and was marked out as a victim. With a howl of joy they rushed for him. I felt his hand steal to his side pocket. "'Let that alone, you fool,' I growled in his ear. "'Sure, mister,' he said, and the next second we were in the thick of it. It was like so many street fights I have seen, an immense crowd which surged up around us and yet left a clear ring. Gresson and I got against the wall on the sidewalk and faced the furious soldiery. My intention was to do as little as possible.' but the first minute convinced me that my companion had no idea how to use his fists, and I was mortally afraid that he would get busy with the gun in his pocket. It was that fear that brought me into the scrap. The jocks were sportsmen, every bit of them, and only one advanced to the combat. He hit Gresson a clip on the jaw with his left, and but for the wall would have laid him out. I saw in the lamplight the vicious gleam in the American's eye and the twitch of his hand to his pocket. That decided me to interfere, and I got in front of him. This brought the second jock into the fray. He was a broad, thick-set fellow, of the adorable bandy-legged stocky type that I'd seen go through the railway triangle at Eris as though it were blotting paper. He had some notion of fighting, too, and gave me a rough time, for I had to keep edging the other fellow off Gresson. "'Go home, you fool!' I shouted. "'Let this gentleman alone. I don't want to hurt you.' The only answer was a hook hit which i just managed to guard, followed by a mighty drive with his right which I dodged so that he barked his knuckles on the wall. I heard a yell of rage, and observed that Gresson seemed to have kicked his assailant on the shin. I began to wish for the police. Then there was that swain of the crowd which betokens the approach of the forces of law and order. But they were too late to prevent trouble. In self-defense I had to take my jock seriously, and got in my blow when he had overreached himself and lost his balance. I never hit anyone so unwillingly in my life. He went over like a polled ox, and measured his length on the causeway. I found myself explaining things politely to the constables. These men objected to this gentleman's speech at the meeting, 
and I had to interfere to protect him. No, no, I don't want to charge anybody. It was all a misunderstanding. Then I helped the stricken jock to rise and offered him ten bob for consolation. He looked at me sullenly and spat on the ground. Keep your dirty money, he said. I'll be even with you yet, my man, you and that red-headed scab. I'll mind the looks of you next time I see you. Greston was wiping the blood from his cheek with a silk handkerchief. "'I guess I'm in your debt, Mr. Brand,' he said. "'You may bet I won't forget it.' I returned to an anxious Amos. He heard my story in silence, and his only comment was, "'Well done, the Fusiliers!' "'It might have been worse, I'll not deny,' he went on. "'You've established some kind of claim upon Gresson, which may come in handy. Speaking about Gresson, I have news for you.' He's sailing on Friday as purser in the Tobermory. The Tobermory is a boat that wanders every month up the West Highlands as far as Stoneaway. I've arranged for you to take a trip on that boat, Mr. Brand. I nodded. How did you find that out? I asked. It took me some finding, he said dryly, but I've ways and means. Now I'll not trouble you with advice, for you can your job as well as me. But I'm going north myself the morn to look after some of the Rushshire woods. "'and I'll be in the way of getting telegrams at the Kyle. "'You'll keep that in mind. "'Keep in mind, too, that I'm a great reader of the Pilgrim's Progress "'and that I have a cousin of the name of Octoloni. "'Thanks for joining us for Chapter 4 of Mr. Standfast by John Buchan. "'Coming next week, Chapter 5, Various Doings in the West. "'This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. "'Thanks for joining us. "'Everyone stay safe.' And we'll be back soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.